really delighted to um, welcome Julius Smith, who's um, a research fellow at the Mellon Center right now, who is going to talk about Mary Martin. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you. Rani. Okay, so, um, so this started out really as an attempt to do something with a um, rogue carpet, uh, although this might not be readily apparent uh, straight away. And um, I'm really glad uh, and thankful to Helen Molesworth for um, discussing the idea of writing associative histories because my interpretation of the prompt to think about textile has been very much to try to think about the exhibition, the Annie Alves show, and textiles as a, in a way, a framework or a methodology that would allow me to um, dislodge the work of Mary Martin from canonical interpretations and make something uh, more interesting or um, speculative out of it. Um, and I do think, um, I was interested in, in the quote from Bloch, and I, but I do, do also relate this mode of writing perhaps to um, feminist traditions um, of speculative history writing and um, associative um, research. And um, I don't know if someone said feminism when I, I went to the bathroom for about five minutes, but if not, then it's five o'clock, and I thought maybe it's about time that someone said it. <laughs> so um, in 1960, the artist Mary Martin was commissioned six wall reliefs for the SS Oriana, a new ocean liner built and operated by the Orient Steam Navigation Company on a route from the United Kingdom to Australia and back. The murals were to be hung on the half landings of the first class staircase and initially was asked to work with ceramic tiles, Martin opted instead for plywood panels with oak blocks in relief, a structure that more closely matched the materiality of the ship <coughs> as well as fitting in with the artist's pre-existing practice. The panels were scrapped in 2005 when the ship was retired from the water after a storm damaged it beyond repair. Luckily, however, the maquettes survive, having been acquired by the Orient Steam Navigation Company as artworks in their own right. So here I am showing you um, an image of two maquettes chosen for the exhibition Ocean Liners, Speed and Style, on view at the V&A last year. <coughs> Uh, followed by some shots of the other maquettes, which I saw in the piano storage in Limehouse, and they're kept under glass, so they don't photo photograph very well, but I kind of wanted to show um, the range of colours. So all the maquettes are one-third of the size of the final murals, and each one is coloured-coordinated to match a different deck. As you can see, Martin worked on a horizontal plane, Displayed on a table and under glass cases, the reliefs prompt associations with architectural models, particularly as Martin made technical blueprints for each one. Importantly, however, they were conceived to be experienced vertically as screens. Requesting that the panels be lit from above, Martin combined flat oak blocks with tilted units of the same material in order to create a dynamic choreography of variegated surface effects. To this end, she also alternated areas of glossy and matte paint so that as the passengers moved up and down the landings, pockets of absorbent darkness would give away to shining flashes of light. Entitled Tidal Movements, the series was 
about motion in every respect. A preparatory drawing shows how Martin encrypted the different phases of the ocean tide into her reliefs through a rotating system of positive and negative tonalities. High tide and low tide as signaled by the gradual movement of the darkest coloured blocks from the top to the bottom half of the composition with the white square at the centre expanding and contracting at the same pace. A sequence of abstract patterns, the murals nonetheless chart a changing maritime landscape mimicking the function of a calendar or a tide gouge. One of the most influential members of the British constructivist movement, Martin stood for a kind of non-representation or art conceived in language, sorry, in dialogue with design and industry, yet imagined as being autonomous from utilitarian applications. Like her peers, Martin welcomed opportunities to take on public commissions for institutions that epitomise the emergence of a new and more egalitarian public sphere in the aftermath of the formation of the welfare state, including, for example, hospitals and schools. And this is a screen which she made shortly before the Oriana Commission, which probably prompted the Oriana Commission for the newly built surgical unit of the Musgrave Park Hospital in Belfast, which is also destroyed. And one strand which might be worth thinking about in the light of some of the papers that we heard today is the idea of a kind of therapeutic modernism, which is sometimes too readily dismissed, which intersects our points quite nicely with the history and practice of weaving. Photographs of Mary Martin's studio encapsulate a familiar vision of the 20th century artist as engineer. With roots in Russian constructivism, the Bauhaus and the Stiegel, her work was about real materials and real places, her words, while simultaneously being governed by verified metaphysical notions based on the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio, mathematical laws that had been recently, well, in the aftermath of the Second World War, popularized by Le Modulor, Le Corbusier's treatise on architectural proportion. And there's a lot to say about how uh, intense, brief, but very intense discussions about, uh, on proportion uh, in Britain took root as an alternative to what many modernist um, architects and designers thought were the dehumanizing aspects of prefabrication, which was being widely used in the post-war reconstruction. So again, for people like Mary Martin, there was a kind of therapeutic element to this idea of harmony and mathematical proportion. And that's very much how her work has been looked at, with a great focus on the mathematical aspects of her practice. <coughs> the invitation to participate in the decoration of the Oriana had come from Misha Black and Milne Gray, who at the time led the Design Research Unit, a modernist graphic design company based in London. And you can see here documentation of the carpets they made for the Oriana, strictly abstract. It was Colin Anderson who had put them in charge of styling the interior of the liner. A ship owner by blood and a keen patron of the arts from a very young age, Anderson had been a great admirer of the Bauhaus. As the junior director of the Orient Steam Navigation Company, he was almost single-handedly responsible for changing the course of British ship design. Previously, the authority had been to replicate the ambience of countryside manors and hotels on the land. Large fireplaces, highly textured marquetry panels such as these ones, 
or rather this one. Brocade curtains, satin wallpapers, and exotic decorations evoking fantastical colonial landscapes had been the norm for almost a century. Anderson was adamant about the need to leave all of that behind, even though he was also reluctant to trash a tradition that had made his family fortune. In a written statement published to mark the maiden voyage of the Oriana, he called the old regime perfectly respectable pastiche, and added, perhaps with a note of sarcasm, that, quote, the rugs really came from Persia, and it was all very well bred. The arabesque patterns of so-called oriental carpets were associated then with a certain connoisseurial etiquette. In contrast, modernist abstraction was seen, definitely by Anderson and by Mary Martin, as delivering a more democratic aesthetic, suitable to an age of colonial restraint and welfare reform. The structure of the Oriana signaled this shift in the social order, as well as its shortcomings. The ship was divided in only two tiers, the first class and the tourist class, with the latter catering to an emergent group of middle-income families imagined as being able to travel purely for the sake of travelling. For decades, ocean liners had tried to pass for buildings, being variously advertised as floating palaces and mobile museums, and even being compared to um, arts and crafts museums a la uh, William Morris. But in the aftermath of the First World War, architects began to look at ships as prototypes for a new and uncompromisingly modern kind of housing. In 1927, actually that date's wrong, Le Corbusier famously illustrated the, fame, the cover of his influential treatise Towards an Architecture with a photograph of the deck promenade of the Aquitania, also a British vessel. The caption praised the pure architecture of the liner, calling it precise, clear, clean, and healthy, in contrast with, quote, the carpets, the cushions, the baldachins, and the damask wallpapers that for the Swiss architect materialized the mournful sadness of a Western bazaar. These words crystallize a largely ideological divide between technology and textility, reducing the latter to a form of primitivist kitsch. There's a lot to say for uh, a, a strand of thinking about abstraction and a kind of streamline um, aesthetic that places it very much at the heart of a Western project, even though its foundations were inextricably tied up with um, forms of primitivism. The director of the Orient Line followed suit. We were rejecting all the damask patterns, the cut velvet, the plush and chintz, Anderson said. The ship owner wanted, in his words, straight and uneventful grain. And arguably, he got it from Mary Martin. And yet we also know that each screen in the series' tidal movements was all about light travelling through pockets and folds of colour in a way that cannot, be, that cannot but be described as eventful. One of the many achievements of the Annie Alves exhibition has been to demonstrate how partial and in effect performative were those claims for a hard-edged and hard-textured modernism. As it turns out, the work of Mary Martin is representative of this, at least insofar as her relationship with abstraction began sitting at the loom. Just as Annie Albers had not set out to study weaving but was presumed to fit right in because of her gender, so too Martin had not expected to be asked to join the textile department of 
well, I'll never be able to pronounce this, Chelmsford School of Art uh, in Essex. After graduating in painting at Goldsmiths and after attaining a scholarship for a further degree at the Royal College of Art, which was a great achievement, particularly for a woman at that time. And I wonder if she'd maybe studied weaving. Um, we heard earlier in the day some interesting connections between uh, modernist weavers working at the Royal College of Art, uh, which might be related to Mary Martin's background. I'm not sure. Nonetheless, she spent a substantial period of time in the 1930s teaching drawing and weaving, whilst also producing carpet designs for private clients like Fortune and Mason, for example. Remarkably, Martin admitted to have learned little about modernism during her studies, although I know that she was very interested in Paul Clay's drawings. Presumably, however, it was the loom that gave her the first grounding in the language of functional geometry, a word that I'm a lot more nervous about now. Um, um, not that this is ever acknowledged, however. The scholarship on Martin conventionally starts with the year 1951, when she's said to have abandoned pictorial figuration to make a late start on the geometrical constructions for which she's now best known. This relief, carved out of a tablet of dead plaster and descriptively titled Columbarium, is routinely offered as the first in a long series of artworks structured as grids. Historically, of course, the grid has been interpreted as a declaration of arts autonomous and autotelic status. Indeed, Martin was adamant that her constructions were, quote, not architecture, not furniture, and not rugs. Subsequent accounts have similarly made a point of staving off associations with textiles, with Alistair Grieve recently stating that this collage is, quote, not a design for a carpet, but a work to be contemplated on a vertical surface as art. And yet Mary Martin, like Annie Albers, did exhibit some of her weavings on a vertical surface, indeed as art. A review of an exhibition held by her husband, Kenneth Martin, in 1936 in his London studio describes a room full of paintings hanging side by side with, quote, some beautiful rugs designed by, him, by his wife, Miss Mary Balmford, her maiden name. The reporter described his artifacts as quieting tones, approvingly noting that the modern flat dweller finds safety in quietness and skews masses of vivid colour. No visual documentation of the display exists. Producing an empirical account of Mary Martin's weavings is indeed challenging. Records of her work, work at Chelmsford School of Art are, as far as I can tell, irretrievable. Her commercial designs are also hard to track down. Only one rug survives, or so I have been told. Made at some point in the 1920s, it is a simple piece in red and beige wool emblazed with an intermittent black grid. For years, it shrouded the floors of the Martins' house, serving a purely functional purpose. But in 2017, it was restored and shown hanging vertically at the Whitechapel Gallery in London as part of Leonor Antun's solo show, The Frisson of Togetherness. Antun's or Antunes, more likely, frequently works with archives in order to forge speculative connections between female artists, architects, and designers who played a key, if not always acknowledged, role in the history of 20th century modernism. And it's interesting to me that it was quite evident to her that Annie Albers and Mary Martin would go 
together, whereas I have to spend a lot of time justifying this connection. Um, her decision to reorient Martin's rug from the floor to the wall is symptomatic of a broader demand for histories of modernism that reclaim um, feminize and domestic traditions of making instead of stopping short at the programmatic statements issued by the fathers of the movement. And as we've heard today, it is also symptomatic of an interest to rethink uh, modernism and the more ethereal and theoretical cl claims made for the movement in relation to um, practices rooted in making. The idea that the murals for the Oriana might hark back to the geometric forms that Martin was weaving in the 20s and 30s appeals to me not only because it flies in the face of Le Corbusier's dogmatic separation of engineering and weaving, which he implicitly cast as the one and the other, it also appeals to me because it provides a way of thinking about pattern and process along lines that are not purely conceptual and informational, but rooted in materiality. So Martin identified the core components of her reliefs as positives and negatives, pluses and minuses, with diagonally sliding blocks or tilts always functioning as transitional elements. This format clearly echoes the binaries that organise the work of the loom, specifically the movement of the warp and the weft folding over and beneath each other, effectively forming a grid. In the constructions, as in the weavings, a pattern was established beforehand through mathematical notations that sometimes produce what the artists refer to as folds. The technicalities of this method appeal to Martin, who, let's not forget, belonged to a long lineage of artists who fashioned themselves in the image of the engineer. As it turns out, this character is not at all antithetical to that of the weaver. Both rely on algebraic planning and material know-how in order to create things that make an intervention in the environment, real object in real places. In the words of Annie Albers, weaving in any form is a constructive process. For Mary Martin and her peers in the British constructivist movement, the step from a traditional to the electronic engineer was a short one. Remarkably, she compared her practice to a form of programming, whereby, quote, a logic and a counter-logic are set in operation and the results are accepted. This statement, as well as others, align her constructions with parallel developments in the field of informatics. Namely, in 1948, Claude Shannon published The Mathematical Theory of Communication, an essay that proved foundational for the emergence of an interdisciplinary discourse called cybernetics. Claiming to deal with the topic of communication purely from the point of view of engineering rather than semantics, in other words, in terms of the structure of a message rather than its content, Shannon defined information in the abstract numerical terms of probability. Similarly, in his series of permutations, Martin relied on a set program of calculations, the structure, in order to produce randomised patterns, the content, and of course there's a level of play in those operations. So I don't actually see mathematics, maths and geometry as distinct from play, a point that was made earlier, because I find maths very playful and quite relaxing. So one could speculate that her compatibility with the operation of technologies premised on binary code owes something to her familiarity with the loom. Of course, this argument, which is speculative, owes everything to the influential work of the philosopher Sadie Plant, whose publications from the 1990s established a female lineage for the emergence of the digital, reclaiming the jacket loom as a direct precedent for the modern computer. 
While Planck's account downplays the importance of the Second World War as a defining moment in the history of the digital, I am interested in how women whose lives were shaped by the conflict, and in particular a young woman who spent the best part of the war years teaching textiles at art school, might have intuitively combined craft-based and cybernetic understandings of code, pattern, control, chance, and feedback. With this in mind, let us draw to a close by going back to the Oriana. That the sea occupies a privileged place in the cybernetic imagination is evinced from the fact that the discipline owes its name to the Greek word for steersman, an etymology that establishes the art of navigation as the cardinal metaphor for the field. Notably, the use of raiders monitoring the movement of ships and submarines during the Second World War played a key role in the development of the computer. Some were quicker than others to capitalize on these connections. Buckminster Fuller, a prophetic believer in the network, liked to compare himself to a naval captain at the helm of spaceship Earth. And I'm glad someone else made a much more direct and substantial connection uh, between Weaving and Buckminster Fuller, because then this doesn't sound completely bonkers. In 1963, Fuller and Marshall McLuhan, easily the two gurus of the electronic age, met abroad of the New Hellas, a ship that transported 32 other intellectuals from 14 countries, all of whom had been invited to participate in a brainstorming session on the question of the future of design and urban planning. The experience was explicitly conceived to follow in the footsteps of the fourth meeting of the International Congress of Modern Architecture, or CM, which had taken place in 1933 on, on a boat trip from Athens to Marseille. And these are all key locations. I mean, if I maybe were to develop a little bit more this idea of a kind of um, Western uh, origin woven into some of these debates, I think all these uh, relationships to Greece and the Parthenon, obviously, in Le Corbusier would be quite cardinal. So if the Athens... Charter had shaped the discourse of the modernist city in the interwar period. The voyage of the New Hellas marked the beginning of a new way of thinking about architecture as a global infrastructural network, inaugurating, at least according to Mark Whitley, the mystique of the net. I like to think of Mary Martin's representations of the sea as pattern, as somehow participating and adding to this movement, both also the debunking the transcendental utopianism of many of its male protagonists. Thank you.